Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den ghanesisk-britiske filosof Kwame Anthony Appiah, som har en helt unik forståelse af verden, en ganske særlig historie, og for 12 år siden udgav en bog, som har gjort et meget stort indtryk på mig, og som jeg meget gerne vil vende tilbage til at tale med ham om. Kwame Anthony Appiah er født i London, opvokset i Ghana, vendt tilbage til London og er i dag professor i filosofi på NYU i New York City. Han har skrevet bøger om multikulturalisme, om racisme, om utilitarisme, om moralfilosofi, om politisk teori og om moralske revolutioner. Han har et ganske særligt blik på verden, fordi han er opvokset med hele den vestlige kanon af litteratur og filosofi. Det er ikke noget, han læser, det er noget, han har læst. Det er noget, han har på fingrene og kan se verden igennem. Men han er også hele tiden vokset op med den ikke-vestlige blik på det vestlige samfund. På grund af den måde, han ser ud på, og på grund af sin historie. Og det betyder, at han er en unikt god kritiker af Vesten og af Vestens selvfortællinger. En af hans store pointer er at der ikke findes noget, som er den vestlige civilisation. At vi tror, vi er noget ganske særligt og enestående, men det er vi egentlig ikke. Det betyder positivt, at hvis vi bare dykker ned i vores egen kultur og vores egen teorier og vores egen litteratur, så skal vi nok nå ud til resten af verden. Det betyder negativt, at vi har en meget dårlig forståelse for Vesten i forhold til resten af verden. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. I am Rune Lykkeberg and especially hello to you. Kwame Anthony Appiah, who's with us from New York. Hello, Rina. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> uh, no COVID so far. Kwame Anthony Appiah's vigtigste bog er for mig bogen The Honor Code, der udkom i 2010. Den handler om moralske revolutioner. Jeg har længe været fascineret af, hvordan et samfund kan ændre holdning til et fuldstændig fundamentalt anlæggende og på den måde fuldstændig ændre sig selv. Et godt eksempel er kvindernes valgret. Det var for 120 år siden ganske almindeligt blandt progressive, liberale mennesker at sige, at demokrati det betød, at kun mænd havde stemmeret. Det var ikke noget sådan særligt anstødeligt standpunkt, at kvinder ikke skulle have stemmeret. Så finder en moralsk revolution sted, hvor man finder ud af, at det kan ikke kalde sig et demokrati, hvis ikke kvinder også kan stemme. At så længe kvinder ikke kan stemme, er det et ufrit samfund. Og det betyder i dag, at selv den mest reaktionære, konservative skeptiker og modstandere af feminisme og folk, der hader identitetspolitik, selv de vil aldrig nogensinde sige, at kvinder ikke skulle have stemmeret. Den her type af moralske revolutioner, hvor et samfund ændrer over bevisning, er efter min opfattelse forudsætningen for virkelige transformationer af samfundet, og det er noget af det mest uforklarlige. Men Kwame Anthony Appiah forklarer i sin bog, The Honor Code, hvordan sådanne moralske revolutioner finder sted i Kina, Pakistan, Storbritannien og USA, med andre ord, over det meste af verden. Jeg har meget længe gerne ville tale med ham om det, fordi jeg har tænkt meget over hans bog, og i foråret sagde han ja til at tale nu her, så vi vender tilbage til en 12 år gammel bog for at tale om, hvordan transformationer i virkeligheden finder sted. Men vi starter med hans livshistorie, og jeg kan røbe her, at den involverer både prins Philip og Queen Elizabeth, og mere vil jeg ikke sige. God fornøjelse med samtalen. I want to ask you a somewhat personal question first. And like I said, I feel a bit like a tabloid journalist, but it's in your website. So I guess I can ask it. You write in your website that Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, they played a significant role in your in your early childhood, that you had a significant encounter with them. Can you tell us about that encounter? Yeah, it needs just a bit of setup because I was eight year olds at the time. The Queen was visiting Ghana where I lived and grew up. Um, Uh, for the first time as a foreign head of state, because she had been the uh, our queen when we were a colony, we ceased to be a colony, and then she was visiting now as as the foreign head of state, as the head of the Commonwealth, but not as the head of the of the government of Ghana. And she was visiting, and I was very sick, and she was visiting the hospital I was in with the president. Uh, now the president had just put my father in prison. Uh, my father was a member of parliament, and he had some disagreements with the president, so the president had him locked up. So they come by my bed. Of course, I was very excited to have both my president and my mother's queen walking <laughs> by my bed. And she did, you know, she did what she did. She came with her gloved hand and she held my hand and asked me, you know, how I was. And I we had a com- little conversation. And then 
As they were walking away, the Duke of Edinburgh, her husband, turned round and saw a picture of my mother and father on the bedside table. And he said, do give my regards to your mother, because he had met my mother. She was a member of the British community in our town, and the last time he had been, since she was one of the few British people there, they had met. Um, actually, she'd also met him, but he wouldn't have remembered um, before she got married because she went to the, one of the coronation garden parties at Buckingham Palace. But anyway, so anyway, he said that. Now, at that moment, that meant that the president knew that the queen and the prince knew that they had just talked to the son of a political prisoner. And of course, he wasn't very happy about that. He was embarrassed. And uh, he, he actually, his doctor wrote a book later in which he said that the president had a running tummy for the next few because he was so upset. Um, and my doctor was fired and so on for embarrassing the president. And um, my mother thought that at that point that it was probably a good idea to get me out of the way because this had been covered in the Ghanaian press and the British press and it was embarrassment. So she shipped me off to her mother in England. And that's why I went to school in England, because the Duke of Edinburgh embarrassed <laughs> the president. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible story. I always wondered when I read you that you write with such an ease about intellectual matters. And I have the sense that you grew up with high culture and, and philosophy. And it really, when I say you write with ease, it's just, uh, it's just a praise. It's only admiration out of admiration. And I always get the feeling that you grew up reading classics and, and that you knew philosophy very early. You're one of those where you feel that you read philosophy, that you don't have to read classics still. <laughs> how, how did you become engaged with literature and philosophy? Well, so my parents had a pretty big library for our town. I mean, you know, there weren't a lot of people who had big libraries in our town. And uh, so we grew up reading, you know, we had, we had lots of books to read, and <laughs> including, you know, uh, Tolstoy, <laughs> Um, Dostoevsky, Jane Austen, the, the, the French uh, 19th century novels and so on. Uh, and also a lot of actually religious books. Uh, we had um, the Baha'i religious texts, we had the Quran, we had the Bible, we had uh, the Bhagavad Gita and so on. Um, when I was at school, I discovered pretty young, I mean, probably 15, 14, that I was interested in philosophy. So I read philosophical books and there was a club at the school which was organized by a teacher and we read philosophy together. And I, I had read parts of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason by the time I was 16. Uh, and I'd read a bunch of, actually I read a fair amount of uh, Kierkegaard when I was uh, a kid. And I don't suppose I understood it very well, <laughs> but it, it sort of got me used to it. And so, uh, because I'd been very ill, as I said, as a child, I had decided I wanted to be a doctor. So I went to university as a medical student. But pretty soon it became clear to me that I should be doing philosophy because I, I wasn't very interested in medicine uh, intellectually. And um, and I was interested in philosophy. So I think my philosophical interest started pretty young. A lot of it had to do with these two things, that I had friends who were also interested in philosophy, uh, one of whom just retired from Trinity College, Cambridge, as a philosophy professor. Um, philosophy done. Um, but also because, uh, and this is where Kierkegaard is relevant, um, I was raised in a very religious family and I was very religious myself and my school was a religious school. And I was thinking about my religious beliefs. And that led me to read theology, but also since theologians talk about philosophy, <laughs> that was sort of what led me into philosophy. And in fact, one of the people who guided one of the reading groups was the was the chap the assistant chaplain of the school. So so I was perhaps to a higher degree than most people reading philosophy to sort out my own life. I wasn't it wasn't just a purely intellectual question. I, I was trying to decide whether I could believe in God. Um, I, I was aware that I was gay and I was and my you know the church at that point, very clearly taught that that was wrong. And I was thinking about what I should do about that. And in thinking about all those questions, the kind of parity and abstraction <laughs> that philosophers can sometimes achieve was very helpful to me. And it, it, helped, it helped me through a kind of crisis. I, I mean, I it wasn't as serious as a crisis, but it helped me deal with, with um, questions that were practical questions for me, questions about how to live my life, ethical questions. So I was very grateful to philosophy because it sort of allowed me to 
think through my situation. It's interesting because a lot of the books that you mentioned, Kierkegaard is something very special here in Denmark because we have yeah. to admire him. And on the other hand, I think basic truth about Kierkegaard is that he didn't want people to lead happy lives. You know, he, <laughs> you know, no, you know, basically he thinks that the more, the less you suffer, the more you move, the, you move yourself from Christ. Uh, so you have to stay in suffering yeah. in order to be close to Christ. And that's not, that is a cultural critique more than it's a foundation of a way of life. And we have to read him here. And I, I tell my kids that he's an absolutely hor horrible philosopher. You know, stylistically, <laughs> he's brilliant, but as a philosopher. Yeah, he's a great he, writer. Yes, he's a, he's, and his critique of democracy is very, is, you know, it's very funny. His concept of irony is very precise, but you don't want to take him seriously. If it's one thing, it's not existentialism, right. uh, for, at least not for us. Yes. No, no. I mean, I, I, I don't now think about Kierkegaard, but I'm just, because of his being a, a philosopher who thought seriously about Christianity, yeah. and because I was thinking seriously about Christianity, um, he seemed like a person that, that we should read. Many of the books that you mentioned and that you used in your work, of course, they're the canon here as, as well. Uh, not necessarily the Quran or the Baha'i writings, but, but many, many of them are the Western canon. Mm -hmm. And I think we often discuss here whether we're too immersed in the Western canon in order to reflect properly on the new world. You know, it's a lot easier for us to relate to citizens' assembly experiments in France than it is to relate to the Chinese Communist Party. Because of our, our theories and the way, you know, we write a lot about American democracy, it's just we've learned to see and understand it, whereas Modi's movement in India is, is less accessible to us. So we often discuss whether we should kind of liberate ourselves from that canon. But it seems to me that you actually very often use that canon to also understand other yeah. societies. I mean, um, this is, I'm, I'm going to do a philosopher's thing, which is fuss about a word. But <laughs> um, I don't think of them as, the canon suggests that there's a list of books that you have to read. I think there are too many books worth reading to, to have a list of books that you must read. And I don't think there's any book you have to read. I think you can live a perfectly decent life. I don't think you can read a decent life as a literate person without reading any books. But I don't think there's any book that you have to read, even, even the Bible, uh, to understand Europe. No, I don't think you need to read the Bible. I mean, I, I love the Bible. I know the Bible pretty well. I, I went to Sunday school. But, um, but I don't think you'd have to read it. Um, I think that it's better for us living, as you said, in the modern world, if we know something about uh, some of the great texts from outside that European and American, North, Amer North Atlantic tradition, um, for two reasons. One is they're full of good ideas. <laughs> uh, Confucianism is really interesting about the relationship between family and community and state and personal life. It says more interesting things about that than, than you'll find in much philosophical writing, starting with the pre-Socratics and going forward, you know, through the Western high tradition of philosophy. Um, and the Buddhist notion of transcending self, you may not want to do it, but it's a very interesting <laughs> idea. Uh, and, it, and it's worth thinking about. And, and so I teach a course every year on global ethics, and we talk about some of the Muslim ethicists of the, of the, of the high Middle Ages, the great Aristotle-influenced uh, Muslim thinkers in, um, in Arabic and Persian. So um, I, um, I just think that that's enriching. But one of my mother's favorite poets was Basho, Japanese poet of the 17th century. My mother wasn't Japanese, she wasn't 17th century. And she couldn't read Japanese, she read it in translation. But she loved Basha's haiku, and she read them to us, and she wrote haiku herself, and she published some. Um, so yeah, that is poems in English influenced by this Japanese writer. That Japanese writer was a great writer. In a script that the Chinese gave the Japanese, and in a religion, Buddhism, that the Indians gave the Japanese. <laughs> so Basha was a great Japanese writer, but arguably the greatest uh, Japanese poet of that period, perhaps ever. But he was deeply dependent upon Chinese and Indian uh, traditions to, to be himself. And I think we can all be like that. Um, and if you, look at, um, if you look at the things that belong to the high canon uh, of, of Western literature, Shakespeare or Dante, that kind of thing, uh, Tolstoy, 
they all, in fact, borrow from <laughs> things outside their own world. Shakespeare's best-known character is a Dane. <laughs> not an Englishman, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so on. So I, I think, um, and not only are we enriched by it, but also it enables the global conversations that are necessary in order for us to share the world. Uh, in, in the 17th century, Basho didn't need to know anything about English poetry because he, he, there were no people around. <laughs> there was nobody English around. There was no interactions with, with England. Um, by the 19th century, when, when, you know, with the Meiji Restoration and the, and the growth of Japanese modernism, the, the modernization of Japan, they had to start dealing with the rest of the world. And Japanese intellectuals at that point studied deeply European uh, philosophy, European literature, and European music. There are probably more performances of, of Beethoven in Japan right now on a typical week than there are in almost any other country in the world. So they valued it, but it also helped them to think about how they were going to relate to these people from elsewhere. And of course, at that point, people in Europe started studying Japan in order to try and figure out how to relate to the Japanese. So I think there, there's a sort of practical political reason, which is that you, you can make more sense of the world with all its variety if you know something about some of the traditions from elsewhere. Uh, but also, even if that weren't true, your life is enriched by it. Shakespeare's life was enriched by having that Danish story to tell or by having those Roman stories to tell and um, or by having stories from travelers to inspire him to write The Tempest, uh, travelers to the Caribbean and so on who wrote not necessarily in English. Um, so, I, so I think that's that's a reason to do it. Not, not because there's, there's anything wrong with Shakespeare <laughs> or Dante or Tolstoy, not that we should reject them, but that we should supplement that with stuff from outside. One other thing, since I'm, I'm talking about what I was calling the high canon, of course, you should also read Simenon and, and, and <laughs> Stephen King. I mean, I, you don't, shouldn't spend all your time uh, <laughs> eating uh, rich food, sometimes it's a good idea just to have some cookies. Um, but, but, but I think your life is enriched by it. I mean, so that, that we were talking earlier about, about building, about, about self-development, about uh, uh, education for its own sake. And I think that part of education for its own sake for a modern person will be enriched if they don't focus all their attention on things that are already known to them because they they're part of their what they think of as their own tradition. And and maybe, you know, if you read Goethe, for instance, if you read Goethe, you'll follow Goethe and you'll get to Persian poetry because he yes. was obsessed by yes, the best divan is about is is inspired by Hafiz. So so the greatest German poet yeah. is inspired by the greatest uh, Iranian poet. And that is a point also that 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 you've repeated that we overestimate the extent to which the Western civilization is western that when yeah. we we sit here we try to say we must liberate ourselves from this exclusive western perspective then you say ah maybe it's not so western after all what do no. you consider the western perspective? i mean my favorite example of this is um the, the brothers Grimm, from whom we have the Grimm's fairy tales uh collected them as as expressions of the german geist that's why they collected them that's why they did the, the deutsches werderbuch because they were collecting the German language, the Sprachgeist, the expression of the German essence. But folklorists have discovered that many of those stories are actually from South Asia. Now they got them out of the mouth of a, of a peasant woman in, in Bavaria, but, but they got to her because perhaps, we don't know exactly, but perhaps because of the, the migrations of the Roma who, who seem to have originated in South Asia. But anyway, they're, they're, they're stories that, so they, they're sort of, told as if they're part of something distinctively German, and they are something distinctively German, but something distinctively German can also come from, um, come from India, uh, just as something distinctively German can come from Greece, as, you know, as much Enlightenment culture in, in, in Germany and in sort of Weimar and so on was shaped by an appreciation of, of uh, Roman and uh, Greek texts. Um, and, and you know, since basically since pretty soon after the beginning, let's say, of the 16th century, ideas are circulating wildly around the world. Ideas about politics are coming into Europe 
from conversations with Native Americans uh, about the Iroquois Confederacy and so on. Um, and and uh, musical ideas too come from Arab music into Western music, come from Andean music into Western music and so on. So the West is is not is a porous thing. It's not a thing with with a with high walls and a big <laughs> moat. It's it's always been porous. And finally, when we talk about the Western tradition, we're usually talking about things that, for most of the history of the West, were reserved for a very very tiny class of literate people. The typical person in London or Paris or uh, Copenhagen in the 17th century couldn't read. So of course they didn't know about Plato or Aristotle right. or or the Quran or they, they, they didn't know anything of that sort. Um, they didn't even know what was in the Bible because the only Bible they had access to was in was in was in Latin and they didn't speak Latin. Um, so all they if they knew anything about the Bible they knew it because some priest said it to them on Sunday. So I think again there's there's that that high canon is high in the sense that it's it belongs to the aristoc to an intellectual and and political aristocracy until the, the democratic revolutions uh, of the 18th century it's very very limited in who who's participating in it and that means that in 17th century england in shakespeare's england for example ordinary people are still believing in witchcraft and and um, all kinds of magic, and, um, and and they're very, very vague about who Jesus is, and so on. I mean, they they have uh, the the thing, the impression of them that you would get from reading, you know, Shakespeare or John Locke is is very different from the impression you would have got if you'd gone there as an anthropologist and just sat around talking to them. Yeah, I was always amazed by the fact that in this environment, that so many people would actually see Shakespeare's plays. That was popular culture and high culture yes. at, the same, at the same time. So it and has to work at both levels. Yeah. Uh, some, some of the jokes in, in, in Hamlet, you can only understand because you, because you know what a philosophy student, <laughs> a Danish prince is a philosophy student would have studied, you know. Uh, you know that to be or not to be is a joke about being and not being and metaphysics in Aristotle. But but and of course the people down in the uh, the groundlings as they call them the people sitting below the stage they wouldn't have known that um, but it has to work at the other level too and non-literate people can have of course rich vocabularies and a rich appreciation for spoken language so when i said they didn't have access to the high traditions of the west they did have access to a rich a beautiful <laughs> uh, spoken language and they they enjoyed as we do uh, learning. Uh, you know, Shakespeare enriches their vocabulary because he uses words that are not part of the current cur common currency of every day, and people enjoy that, whether they're yeah. literate or not. Yes, yeah, I, I want to turn to the book, uh, The Honor Code, which is a wonderful book. Because, and our, you know, we always think about, you know, we're born out of the resistance movement. So we're all about changing the world here. And every time you want to change the world, if you want to make the big green transition, you realize that you must change attitudes and behavior. And I've always been very curious about these transitions in history, where all of a sudden you see even very, very conservatives today would always claim that a women, should, women should have the right to vote. 100 years ago, it wasn't so... So, so these transitions in these changes in spaces of reason, as Hegel would call it, I've always been very, very curious about them because they're so difficult to understand. Uh, you call them moral revolutions. How, how do you define these moral revolutions? Well, I think of them as moments when there's a large change in a morally important set of practices. Because one of the things that I argue in the book is that the intellectual arguments for the moral change precede the change itself. Um, the arguments against slavery, for example, are, I mean, are already being made in Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle thought that some people were natural slaves, but lots of people at his time didn't. And, and there are critiques of that way of thinking from very early on. And by the 18th century, when the big anti-slavery movements start in the North Atlantic, the pile of arguments against slavery is enormous, and lots of people know 
that it's wrong, not just to enslave people, but also, of course, the particular conditions of the slave trade in the North Atlantic, which were absolutely horrendous. So everybody knew, as it were, the arguments, and lots of people even thought it was wrong, but they didn't do anything about it. <laughs> um, so the question is why they came to do something about it. And that's the moral revolution, not the changes in argument, which happen slowly. And, and they, I'm not saying the changes in argument don't matter. They have to be there. You have to make the arguments. But before they turn into action, I think um, perhaps I'll tell you a story about it that's a, that's a little bit stresses something that the book, I think, doesn't stress enough, um, which is that what actually happens, and the, the, the big changes I looked at were changes in Chinese attitudes to footbinding, changes to attitude to slavery among English working class, and changes in attitude to dueling in England in particular, though similar things happened in the rest of Europe. Um, and in all of those cases, there were a bunch of things that happened. One was that um, even if it was wrong to do those things, it wasn't shameful to be associated with them at the beginning of this process. The beginning of this process, you could be an honorable slaveholder. Uh, you 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 had to be, uh, you had to cut, uh, bind your daughter's feet if you were honorable, because you couldn't marry her to an honorable man from an honorable family if you didn't bind your daughter's feet. And uh, again, dueling was an, an honor practice. They did it in order to maintain their honor. They didn't lose honor by doing this incredibly stupid thing. They they uh, won it. So one thing that has to shift is that. And I think part of the shift hap that happens is best understood as involving the creation of a new kind of moral identity. It's being an abolitionist. <laughs> that's a kind of person. Being a green, that's a kind of person. And among abolitionists and among greens and among anti-footbinders, there is a sense of solidarity and mutual respect because we are on the right side which means that if you participate in those things, these people you identify with will lose respect for you. And that sense of a community of people pushing forward on a moral agenda is why at the end of the process, when, it, when you win the, when you not win not just the argument, but you win the, the practice, it's because people have become these creatures called abolitionists who feel shame when they participate in, slave, uh, in, in slavery. And, you know, in the in the late 18th century, when abolitionism is is a big movement in England, it was the first mass movement in England. Um, the largest numbers of petitions to Parliament in the late 18th century came were abolitionists, and they were signed by tens of thousands. I mean, millions of people signed them, and the, and they they sent petitions to Parliament that had 10,000 signatures on them from from Birmingham or somewhere. <laughs> um, and working people uh, who didn't have the vote and might not have signed those petitions refused to drink sugar in their tea because sugar was a slave product. They liked sugar, hmm. but they wouldn't drink slavery products. There were huge sugar boycotts, and they involved middle-class people, but also working-class people. So that sense that we have this thing we're doing and that we are the people who are on the right side is why those revolutions can occur, why you don't just win the argument, but you win the practice. And so... Um, Probably without the Napoleonic Wars, which obviously distracted people, um, the abolition of the slave trade would have occurred in the late 18th century and not in the early 19th century. I and mean, the abolition of the slave trade, which happened in 1802 and three in Britain, uh, because it, it, people were so preoccupied with it. And the, the final abolition of, of slavery itself in the West Indies uh, happened you know, just a generation later, basically. So I think that if we want to do the right thing, say, around the environment or around maybe animal rights and, and um, ethical issues to do with the moral treatment of animals, we need to do it as ethical vegetarians or as, or as greens or as whatever. I mean, that abolitionist movement was sustained by thousands of meetings which went on for eight hours in which ordinary people sat and listened to lectures about how horrible slavery was and about what was going on and they they now of course they didn't have television and they didn't have radio and they didn't have the very short attention span that comes from living on the web 
So it was entertainment as well. But that's the point. You want to make it interesting. You want to create solidarity among the people who are on the right side. And then two things will happen. One is they'll stop doing the things themselves that are bad, but they'll also put, they'll, they'll want to change the rules. They'll want to change the law. They'll want, uh, they'll want green legislation and they'll want to ban gasoline powered cars, uh, not just stop using them. They won't want other people to use them and they will have a moralized feeling about it. They'll think of it not just as something we want to stop, but as something only bad people, only dishonorable people would want to do. If you see someone driving around New York City in one of those huge things, cars that are called Hummers, which just waste endless gasoline, and they were designed for military use, apparently that used to make people feel, uh, sort of admire people. But now a lot <laughs> of us just think that's the, that's the stupidest, <laughs> what kind of idiot would do that? And so these moralized changes, are, sometimes they go too far. I mean, you know, the turn against smoking was like this. I didn't discuss this in the book, but the turn against smoking. Yeah. Um, now people don't just feel that if you smoke, it's bad for you and maybe bad for the people around you. They look down on you. <laughs> they disrespect you because they think that because we've moralized not smoking uh, in, in, in the sort of way that not participating in the products of slavery was moralized by the abolitionist movement. So, so that's my, my, my theory is that this is not an anti-reason view, because as I say, the arguments matter. Yeah. But to get them operative, you need a social movement. And to get that social movement to work, people have to have a social identity. They have to think of themselves as belonging to a group that's doing making the change in the world. In, the, in China, both anti-opium and anti-footbinding societies were you know, enormously important to people, people's sense of it. And, and when you signed up, you made commitments. I won't bind the feet of my daughter. I won't let my daughter marry, uh, my son marry a girl whose feet are bound. Uh, I will unbind my wife's feet and so on. But also a sense of, of an agenda that's shared, a, a, a community ag agenda associated with the movement. And one final thing, I think um, you don't want the agenda to be too complicated. <laughs> you, you want to focus on the big things because otherwise uh, people will get bogged down in the details. Something that you mention in the book is that there's often an alliance between insiders and outsiders saying we're in a very patriarchal society and, and, and the girls, they, they, they would form a movement. We're feminists. And they would shame their fathers by saying, well, people in the other countries, they will look down on us. So they will, there will be this alliance between insiders and outsiders. Yes. I mean, I think that's very important because, but it's also important that it has to work by an alliance between outsiders who respect you yes. and insiders. Because if you just condemn people and you, you don't have any respect for them, They don't care what you think of them. <laughs> Why should they? Um, the people who really influenced the first important Chinese anti-footbinders were uh, missionaries often who were incredibly respectful of Chinese civilization. They had taught themselves classical Chinese in order to translate the Bible, for example, or the New Testament anyway. And they had studied the Confucian classics, which the literati studied for their exams in order to get, come into positions of authority in China. And they could talk about them. They, they knew what they were talking about. And so this was people who, who, were, who were genuinely respectful of China. And therefore, it was kind of painful to them that the Chinese were doing this thing that they thought was obviously wrong because it was causing pain to these girls and then uh, disabling them for the rest of their lives. They couldn't walk around properly. And again, in that case, lots of arguments were made against foot binding. Footbinding is not a Confucian practice because it doesn't start until maybe the ninth or 10th century. But the first critiques of footbinding that I, that I could find are already in the 11th century. So it's not, like, it's not like there was never any arguments on the other side. And all the arguments are obvious. You're causing pain to children whom you love. They're your children. Uh, you're um, reducing the capacity of women to participate in, in productive life and so on. So it wasn't that there weren't arguments against it. It was that it was an honor practice. It was sustained by the idea that honorable women had their feet bound in, because that 
expressed the idea that they were chaste and so on because they couldn't they couldn't run out run off and have affairs with men and so on. Um, I mean that's sort of symbolically true. So I think in that process, both these male missionaries and also the wives of European businessmen on the coast, elite women, who also respected Chinese civilization, they liked Chinese silk. They thought it was wonderful. <laughs> Chinese dresses, they wore Chinese dresses. Um, they, they had this influence because they were respectful outsiders. Uh, people who just looked down on the Chinese why should they care? I mean, the Chinese reasonably thought they were a great civilization, so they weren't interested in people who looked down on them because they just thought that showed you didn't understand what was a great civilization. And I um, think for us today, I think that's a very, very important point because very often you see the green movement and we're part of the green movement saying that, well, farmers, they should just stop what, whatever they're doing. This animal production is bad for our grandchildren. It's indefensible. And then you have no leverage at all. Or you have no leverage. And also, you sound to a farmer like someone who doesn't know anything about farming. Because, <laughs> uh, because, because, and, and you don't very often. I mean, the first thing you need to do if you want to criticize a practice is to make sense, make sure you understand what's going on. This is crucial to debates about female genital cutting and the, the mutilation of the genitalia of girls and young women. Um, if you don't know what's happening, your critique will just seem crazy to the people you make it to if you don't know what, what goes on. If you say things like FGC deprives women of sexual pleasure, well, there are women out there who are having sexual pleasure, who've been cut, and they know you're wrong. So of course they're not interested in you. Now, I don't mean that there aren't forms of infibulation that do deprive people of sexual pleasure, but you need to know what the actual practice is. You need to be criticizing the right thing. That's a minimum kind of respect when you criticize somebody to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And uh, if we want to work with farmers to change agricultural practices, the first thing we need to do is to figure out what they're up to. And also I think to, to make the right criticism, right? I mean, there are different criticisms. For example, we can make criticisms of the suffering of animals in certain kinds of agriculture, which can be solved by producing animals without suffering. Right. I mean, yes. that does, that's not essential. Um, and that's a different criticism from the ecological criticism of the massive uh, ecological inefficiency uh, of the energy transfers from the food that the cows eat to the cows. You know, they get, what is it, 10 percent of the energy from that and then we get 10 percent of the other. So that means we get one percent of the energy from the from the food. Right. <laughs> That's incredibly inefficient. And in, in our world, that matters because also cows produce a lot of uh, carbon waste, as humans do, uh, I mean, from our bodies. So, um, yeah, so you've got to get it right. And, and, and the minimum way of getting it right is, is to be respectful of what the people you're criticizing are doing. And one of the things that's important in that kind of conversation is that if you enter into a respectful conversation with someone you're criticizing, they're likely to criticize you. <laughs> yeah. They're likely to find things that you're doing that they reasonably think are not so great. Um, one of the responses to the critique of footbinding was, was to point to the, the ways in which uh, women were corseted in the West and to ask whether that wasn't also a kind of <laughs> mutilation of women, right? Yeah, because I often feel that, you know, people who are not very focused on the well-being of Muslim girls then when it comes to the headscarf, then their liberation is the most important yes. thing in the world. But if you don't want to change their material conditions, if you don't want to change their access to public institutions, then you have no authority. Say, I mean, one thing that happens if you don't do it without in the respectful way is you'll actually get the opposite of what you want. They'll take it up. That's what yeah. happened with, uh, with the hijab. Uh, in my mother's generation, uh, women in North Africa didn't wear the hijab. The ed educated women didn't wear the hijab. They, 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 they were not veiled at all. Then, because they were criticized by sort of anti-Arab and anti-Muslim people, they took it up as a, as a sign of resistance. Um, so I think um, that's just a good example of what happens if you do it wrong. I, I, so when I read your book originally, I always thought that a moral revolution that would be progressive, 
that that would be like women's liberation or anti-slavery, anti-racism. But then over the last four or five years, I've been thinking when I look at the conservatives, that they speak of what they experience as a kind of moral revolution. Yep. We were told that we could not criticize immigrants. They called us racists, but but now we're liberated. Now we can talk together. Yes. And, and they have the same, you know, meeting with people. They're more internationalists than socialists are at the moment. Yes. And, and th- then this collective shaming strategy from the progressives absolutely fail. Yes. And, and do you recognize this conservative moral revolution? Yes, look, um, it was a moral revolution that produced one of the great disasters of American constitutional history, namely prohibition. <laughs> yeah. All, you know, that was a very organized movement. The arguments were, were morally serious arguments about the role of alcohol in, in, in spousal abuse of women and so on. That's all true. Uh, but then they passed the Constitutional Amendment and created a huge crime system, <laughs> uh, which, which, which we still live with the legacy of, uh, because some of those criminal enterprises are ancestors of contemporary uh, criminal enterprises. So, um, yes. No guarantee that it will go in the right direction. Um, and in fact, uh, you can use these mechanisms to push things in a very bad direction. You can use these mechanisms to push things backwards. Uh, that's, I think, uh, one way of understanding the Iranian revolution, which shifted uh, Iran backwards, in part, I mean, from my point of view anyway, because of the... Um, because the way they'd been pushed forward under the Shah was so disrespectful of the Iranian people, so anti-democratic. And that means that um, there was scope for a backlash movement, and there was, and you know, there they are, the Ayatollahs are now in charge. So one, one last question is, now we, go, we look through history, we've seen these we tend to call them counter-revolutions because we think of our revolutions as the right ones. Yes. But we could also call them conservative revolution. It's obvious that's also what you've been seeing in America with Trump and with Brexit. And when you listen to them, they do have, I think they do have some more points. Uh, how should we, ca- how, how to counter these revolutions? What is the best way of engaging with them? If And collective shaming obviously does not work anymore. I know that's a difficult question. Yes. I mean, I think that part of the answer in the context of politics, which is a a particular context, is that we have to spend time with people we don't agree with. Uh, And and now I'm talking about the United States because I don't know enough about Denmark. But in in my country, uh, I I find it very hard to socialize with Republicans, not because I don't want to, but because I don't know any. (laughs) Uh, our social worlds are very, very divided. And once people have political identities that are organized around a number of positions, um, they won't want to be with people who don't share those positions. Uh, Americans in the 1960s, many, many uh, white and black Americans, didn't want your kids to marry outside the race. Uh, Now, the biggest thing, fear, many Americans have about their children's marriages is that they'll marry, among conservatives, that their children will marry liberals, and among liberals, that their children will marry conservatives. That's the big worry. They're more worried about that in some communities than they were about interracial marriage uh, or or interreligious marriage in in the 1950s in America. Of course, that leads to a world in which people don't spend time. If If you won't marry people, you certainly won't hang out with them. We need to spend time with each other not talking about politics because I can hang out with someone whose whose views are, in my view, terribly wrong about politics if I have other things to join us together. Hmm. I learned this as a child because my grandmother, whom I I say I lived with a lot in England as a child, um, when she got older, she sold her house to, to, to somebody and moved next door to the cottage next door where I lived with her. And um, when I was in England, and that man who bought the house next door and his wife, um, he was a very right wing member of the English Parliament. Very right wing. And he was incredibly nice to me. (laughs) 
I went to his college at Cambridge because he took me to see his college and introduced me to people there. Uh, and I didn't have any other reason for picking any particular college, so I went to his. Um, so I knew, as and I was a, you know, I had a subscription to the Soviet news. I, I was a lefty, an extreme <laughs> lefty. I wasn't doing anything about it, but I, and I had a copy of Mao's little red book in my pocket. So um, it's very important that because of that, we could be friends and have conversations about politics in which we disagreed with one another because we had this background of trust. And many things have conspired to disrupt those kinds of relations in many countries. Um, and one of them, I think, is that the progressive parties in, in Europe and in North America are now parties of the university. Yes. They're parties of intellectuals. And I don't mean they're all in, members are all intellectuals, but they're sort of dominated by, and so that's why they care a lot about uh, the kinds of things that intellectuals care about, these identity issues to do with trans issues and gay issues and women's issues and racial issues and so on. And I'm all in, I mean, I, those are all my issues. I, I agree <laughs> with all that. But you can't run a society together if you don't know what the issues are of the people who don't go to university and they, and they get to vote too. And they care about other things. And frankly, this is maybe different in Denmark from here, but here, the party of the, the, the supposedly progressive party, the Democratic Party, has done almost nothing serious in the domain of redistribution for most of the time I have been in the United States. We have lived through a vast increase in national wealth and a vast increase in inequality. But if you increase national wealth, the natural thing to do is to lift up the bottom, not the top. The top's doing fine already. But that involves policy. You have to, the, you have, to have political action to do that. So it's not surprising, I think, that non-university educated people who are not doing very well economically, which is only one part of the right, there's, a, there's another part of the right that is, that's a, there's a different part of the right, but that part mm. of the right, it's not surprising that they don't trust parties led by people who went to university because um because it hasn't we, we haven't we haven't done anything for them i mean we <laughs> haven't done nothing we, we we got finally got some kind of healthcare yeah. in this country so i i think that's um you know when my grandfather was in the labor cabinet that created the modern welfare state in in, in the post in the after the first second world war you know he was the chancellor of the exchequer uh in the you know when they created the national health and so on and um he did go to university, though he didn't finish university because he went to law school because he wanted to become a lawyer and look after his wife. But he came from a university-educated family. But of the five leading people in that cabinet, two were working people who had, who had gone straight from school to work. There's nobody like that in the Labour cabinet today. No <laughs> real working people. No. Working class people. People who don't come from the educated classes. That's, I think, a bad thing. Uh, because it's a reflection of these fissures in society. And progressives ought to be against those fissures. <laughs> and conservatives ought to be against them too, because conservatives believe in a, a kind of um, sense of common fate, common identity, right? That's one of the things that conservatism is about. So we have an agenda. We, we disagree about lots of the policy issues. But honestly, in the end, for most people, the policy issues are kind of signals. Yeah. They're not really, it's not like most ordinary people have a deep opinion about what the right level of taxation is based <laughs> on a serious economic argument. I, I don't know what the right level of taxation is, and I'm a relatively well-educated person. And it's not like they have, uh, you know, independently formed views about, about whether Vaccines are a good idea, which on the right in the United States, is, they're now thought to be a bad thing. It's just that those are signals of their identity. And we could probably get them to change their minds about those things if we were talking to them and not talking to them about the things that are marks of identity, but talking to them about how to make the streets, well, in our country, how to make the streets cleaner, how to improve the quality of public education. All of these are things that... Um, you know, there's a very wide agreement are important, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I think if we could work on those things and also talk to each other about football and yeah. movies and whatever you want to talk about, 
uh, I think we'd, we'd be doing a better job of, of being a society. Well, thank you. I think when you look at it from Denmark, you, you think that America has lost kind of the commonality of the physical world. Because we have huge disagreements here about climate, race, immigration, and there are lots of issues where America is a lot more progressive and well-functioning than we are. It's easier to come as an Iranian to American than it is to Denmark. I'm sure about that. But that's a kind of a horror scenario that you don't share a common world. But your work helped us share something in, in common, at least. Kwame Anthony Appiah, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time. Well, and thank you for inviting me to this conversation and greetings to your listeners. Det var min samtale med Kwame Anthony Appiah. Den bog, som vi talte mest om, det er The Honor Code. How Moral Revolutions Happen, som jeg vil anbefale alle. Jeg anbefaler selvfølgelig også, at man ikke køber den over Amazon, men i stedet for bestiller den hjem gennem sin lokale boghandel. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med Jason Hickel, som er økologisk økonom. Der er mange, der meget længe har efterspurgt, at vi her i langsomme samtaler taler med nogle af degrowth-teoretikerne. Nogle af dem, der prøver at tænke et samfund efter væksten. Og det har vi jo så i mødekommet. Det synes vi også selv er interessant, så derfor har jeg lavet aftale med Jason Hickel, som sidste år udgav en af degrowth-bevægelsens vigtigste bøger, Less is More. Og jeg vil sige, at hvis man har gode forslag til nogen, som man gerne vil høre, at vi taler med, så skriv til mig, runesnablaginformation.dk, med forslag. Vi tager imod mange forslag, og nogle af dem er rigtig gode, og andre af dem, dem lægger vi i skuffen, og så kan det være, at vi kan bruge dem på et senere tidspunkt. Men hvis der er nogen, man gerne vil høre i langsomme samtaler, så skriv idéer til mig. Man må gerne kvalificere sine idéer en lille smule og henvise til en bog eller andet, de har skrevet, eller en forelæsning, de har givet, så jeg har et eller andet konkret at tage fat i. Det er mig, der står og snakker her uge efter uge, men jeg ser det alligevel som et kollektivt produkt og som noget, vi laver sammen. Igen i den her uge er det Anne Pilegaard Petersen, vores assistent og hjælper og vidunderlige kammerat, som har fået brokkerne sat sammen til noget, der minder om en samtale. Tak til Anne, tak til jer for at lytte med. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge.